Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here, and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have another podcast replay. A podcast replay is where we share with you one of the most popular and most listened to episodes of the Deal Room podcast. And in today's podcast replay, we have a client spotlight episode with our client Peter Hughes from Kakeda Lane Dental. Now, this episode is the first half of a two-part series where we dive deeply into a discussion about aggregations, the creation of a unique model, and the acquisition process as a whole. The discussion provides important insights for buyers and also for sellers as we discuss valuation models, how to minimize acquisition risks, where deals can go wrong, important elements in driving the process of the transaction, and how sellers can best line themselves up for an exit. This episode has been one of the most listened to episodes and we cannot wait to share it with you again. So here's our podcast replay with Peter. Peter Hughes, welcome to the Deal Room Podcast. Thank you for having me, Joe. I am absolutely excited to have you on the show, Peter. We do a lot of work together and I guess I really just wanted you on the show today because I wanted to dig into the real stories of being involved in the middle of a transaction. You know, we have a lot of people on guests on the podcast that are talking about it from the advisor space, but I just think it's always really interesting to get into it and and look at what the inside of a transaction looks like. So let's take it away. Maybe if you can kick it off, Peter, just by giving us a little bit of an outline of Kakata Lane and what what you're doing at the moment? What What is the model that you're following currently with your acquisitions? I suppose to put it in um, fairly basic terms, we're a dental aggregator. Um, so we look for high performing chewer dental practices. We acquire those practices based on a, a set criteria valuation. And we provide all the back office and corporate service, I guess, things that are required to operate the the practice from a non-clinical standpoint. We've got practices at the moment in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. We're about to enter South Australia. We've got a transaction almost complete there and we've got a fairly deep pipeline of potential acquisitions lined up. And I suppose the thing that differentiates us from other aggregators out there is we, I think, have a more flexible model insofar as we can either acquire 100% of a practice or we can acquire a 50% or greater proprietary interest in a practice and we create a partnership opportunity with the principal that can reap, um, I think, far higher um, rewards in terms of wealth creation for the participant. Yeah, and that's what I think your model is really unique. Um, and and I guess there's lots of models around aggregations. And, and, you know, I guess the dental industry itself, as we know, has gone through some changes over time and, you know, has some perhaps challenges at the moment um, for an aggregation model. So maybe can you talk to us a little bit about the industry as a whole and why 
why you've gone with this sort of unique take on the model. The industry is a $10 billion plus um, industry uh, sector in Australia. So it's, it's a large exercise. There's about 8,000 odd registered dental practices in the country and they vary in size from the single man practice to the multiple owner practices and only about 7% of the market has been aggregated. So it's a very low level mm. in comparison to the UK and the USA. So there is I guess from my standpoint, a significant opportunity to to acquire a number of practices and to build a solid business portfolio from that. Why we do what we do is I think the biggest issue most aggregators have is retention of key performers and sustainability of earnings. So our model has put a lot of thought into how we can retain the services of the dentist through lock-in mechanisms mm-hmm. that incentivise them to perform rather than create, I, I suppose, relationships um, that require you know, the big boot stick over the head approach, mm-hmm. which we think doesn't work. So it's all about relationships for us and how we work um, in an aligned and cohesive manner with the principles. And it, like getting really practical, let's talk about what you practically do um, to to give life to to that. How is it that you're you, you know you're giving life to those things that you're talking about? We source practices from a variety of mechanisms. We have brokers that we work with right around the country who know, uh, particularly me and my team. And know what we're looking for. Um, we often have practices that approach us directly. We market directly to some practices. So we don't really have an issue or a problem in terms of sourcing product that we can place in our portfolio. It's really working through what fits our model best and what relationships we believe will best suit us and, and the participant. And that's really geared around the culture that exists in the practice, I suppose, in comparison to the culture that we've got at our, at our head office. So there's a number of factors that we look at in terms of making an acquisition. But once we've built a relationship with the principal, it then comes down to being able to assess particularly the financials of that practice and looking at the the empirical earnings over usually a three-year period and we go through what we call a normalisation process where we cut out a lot of the, the non-operational expense lines that some businesses or some practices run through their, their books and we, we come up with an operational EBITDA and we apply a multiple to that EBITDA and that's how we get a valuation of the practice. Mm. And so for, for any of our listeners who might be running dental practices and be interested in this process, can can you and maybe perhaps don't understand the normalisation process? Can you just talk about a, a little bit just briefly? What is it that you're pulling out? We pull out things like if, if a principal's running a motor vehicle, a personal vehicle through a practice or has personal insurances running through the practice, might be running um, other things through the books that are not pertinent to the operation of the practice. We strip those out. We also take out depreciation because we look at an interest and any financing charges because we're actually assessing the valuation on an, e- on an EBITDA basis. Great. Okay. All right. Wonderful. And so, and so you've talked a little bit about the process that you go through, but just from a more general perspective, what is the kind of dental practice that you're looking for? So, so you mentioned culture as being one of those things, but what does that look like or or what should dental practices be thinking to that they should be doing to line themselves up for, for this type of potential relationship in the future or sale? 
Yeah, I think one of the key things we see is that there are a lot of great practices out there, but um, a lot of the the earnings um, revolve around one individual. So the mm. personal exertion levels of a principal play a big role in determining one the the, the level of attractiveness of the practice, and secondly um, the impact on valuation. Because obviously, if that key person goes down, the earnings of the practice will be impacted significantly. So we look for a spread of earnings, spread of fee-earning practitioners. Most of our um, acquisitions are are multi-chair, so three chairs and above type practices. And in terms of culture, it's very interesting because as soon as you walk into some practices, you can see the level of vibrancy, the happiness of the team. Um, the way they meet and greet their patients, you know, the energy in that practice. Mm. Uh, and there are others that you go into and you, you think, well, by, by jingoes, you, you wonder how they've got patients through the door. So, mm. um, yeah, it, it's because I've been in this industry now for many, many years, it, it, it's a pretty easy thing for me to walk through and, and see how that practice operates um, from a process standpoint. So that plays a big part in, I I guess, my decision-making in terms of does this practice actually fit what we're trying to do in the rest of the business? I love that because I'm just thinking as you're talking, you know, I've seen lots of um, M&A and due diligence checklists over the time, but walking in and feeling the vibe of the place, (laughs) it's not usually on there, but I love it. That's It's such a good point, isn't it, that maybe is overlooked quite often, but by the practice owners themselves. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it is, you know, and it's like we we have all the due diligence checklists, like everyone else, and we go through formal DD processes. We use external parties to do both the legal and the financial DD as a check mechanism for us. So we've got all those processes in place. But you're right, unless you walk in the door and you you meet and greet people, um, you talk face to face with the principals and the fee earners, you just don't have a feel for how that practice operates and. Even post-acquisition, it's really important for me to be able to walk into any practice that we've acquired or we've got a, a proprietary interest in and the staff in that practice know me, um, mm. they, know, they greet me by name, I can greet them when I can remember their names <laughs> because we've got quite a few team members now. <laughs> um, but I take the time to explain to them that just because I'm wearing a suit or, or a different set of clothes and not scrubs, um, I'm no more important or no less important than anyone else. We just have different roles in the business. So I treat everyone the same um, on an equal basis. It's egalitarian um, environment and uh, works really well for us. Mm. And so, and I'll ask you in a moment to talk a little bit about um, your history because I, I think, you know, there's some interesting things there we can talk about. But you've had a long history in understanding um how uh, sales and acquisitions in this space can work. What do you think are some uh, some warnings? Like where have you seen in the past this sort of go wrong for practice owners that are selling out? Um, I think if, if you get past, let's say, uh, you know, a point of term sheet and you move into contracts and, and the contracts are, are fairly simple. You've got a, a sale or an acquisition agreement and that can be by shares or assets and goodwill. And then you've got a service level agreement that locks in um, the principal or principals into a relationship with you for a period of time. I guess where we've seen things go wrong is when you don't define, I guess, some key points 
in the contracts. And even when you do some of the vendors, lawyers push back very heavily on those. But I guess from our, our perspective, if we're putting millions of dollars on the table to acquire a high-performing practice, we have an expectation that what we're acquiring in terms of equipment and and the and the gear that's in that practice and the tools that are used are in good working order. So what we like to, to have in place is a warranty or a set of warranties around some of those um, types of matters that create um, less of a risk for us when we start to operate the practice. Um, I guess another hotbed at the moment is um, information technology systems because um, the, the rules and the laws now around privacy and data breaches uh, are very significant. And we find a lot of practices are still running what you would might, might term domestic style IT setups, even using a, a computer as a server and no uh, virus, any virus protection, really poor firewall protection. So we, we really need to have the proper systems in place when we acquire the practice because we've actually suffered um, a, a data encryption, a ransomware attack in one of our practices, and it can create havoc and you know bring down production for weeks at a time. So um, I think we've learned some lessons from what we need from that, and we work with our IT provider in undertaking an audit along with the other DD items um, prior to acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's an interesting, um, one interesting element in what you're talking about here is um, I think sometimes the benefit for um, practice owners who are exiting to exit to to sell to um, a, an acquirer who knows what they're doing <laughs> with the process because, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there, there can be a lot of issues uh, in selling any sort of business, in, including a dental practice, to a buyer who doesn't know what they're doing in the process. Um, but also, uh, you know, there can be a lot of issues when acting from the buy side when you're dealing with sellers who, you know, generally have never done this before, but even worse still, if they have, you know, advisors and deal teams who don't really, mm. you know, who haven't dealt with this area a lot, you know, that that can be a tricky uh, tightrope to walk, uh, I guess. And, you know, you and I have had many discussions over time of how do we ensure that we're able to um, properly bring the parties a- along in the process when they may not uh, be uh, well educated and, and because they haven't done this before. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess what insights have you had over time about what works well and what doesn't work well? I think you've raised a very good point. And, and if I was a vendor um, selling a dental practice, I would try and get some advice from a lawyer who's been down that pathway before um, because it's a very, 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 very different business, I suppose. Um, any clinical service business um, has its nuances. And what we found is that Sometimes we get stonewalled with, I guess, a commercial viewpoint um, akin to selling a building or a property or, yeah. um, or or another type, you know, an industrial business, etc. So it's 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 a specific and I guess contentious issue if you don't get the right advice mm. at the outset. And and what we, as I said at the at the start, what we try and do is make sure our contracts are written in clear mm. English. Um, they're not difficult. Uh, to comprehend, read, and they lay things out fairly simply. But 
we've been in situations where lawyers have tried to rewrite the whole things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Overzealous. Yeah. <laughs> Overzealous lawyers. Yeah. Yes, we can. Yeah, there's lots of stories there, Peter, lots of stories there. But, but you know, and I guess the point is as well, when you're working with lawyers to put together, you know, contracts that you're using, one of the important things I think is to also have somewhat balanced contracts, you know, because otherwise you'll end up, you know, and we've had lots of these discussions as well, but the, the, the benefit of having these more balanced contracts that are going out is that, you know, you're really reducing the real issues that should be coming up um, in that, you know, contract negotiation phase. Oh, that's absolutely right, Joe. Uh, all contracts need to be balanced and equitable. It can't be weighted one heavily one way or the other. It just doesn't work for anybody like that. So, you know, one of the things I suppose that we ha- have some pushback on occasionally is we hold a small retention sum at settlement to account for adjustments that occur um, post-settlement. So often supplier bills come in late. Um, there might be superannuation that's outstanding. There are employee entitlements that need to be adjusted. So, you know, there's invoices that um, that have been sent and the payments come late, which should go back to the vendor. So mm-hmm. we use that sum and we only hold it for a month to, to make those adjustments and then we release the balance back to the, the vendor. But we've had pushback on things like that. But to me, they're just sensible commercial things to do to make the process go smoothly. Um, rather than trying to create, you know, a barrier to something in someone else's mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing that also comes up, um, you know, in my mind uh, about the process is, you know, things that sometimes just drive me nuts about because we deal with lots of other lawyers so I can I can comment on what drives me nuts about many lawyers <laughs> with with authority here because we deal with so many but constant forwards and backwards of emails you know I just find a lot of lawyers just hate getting on the phone hate getting together yeah. and actually talking through issues so it's a bugbear of mine but you know and I just think you know um, deals are best done in a rapid way and you know getting on the phone quickly or getting an all-parties meeting together to resolve issues. What's your thoughts on th- that process sort of side? Of- oh, well, you're absolutely right. We've been through it together a few times. <laughs> um, and there was one instance uh, on a transaction we did this year up in Queensland where we had one of those lawyers. But Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I agree. It makes a hell of a lot of sense just to get on the phone and talk things through and um, – and, and put it out there rather than send reams of emails back mm-hmm. and forth. It, it just racks up um, unnecessary time and costs for everyone. So, yeah, I think um, if you're going to do this sort of deal, I think even like a, um, a pre-contract meeting with um, or with the lawyers involved yeah. to talk about um, how we're going to approach um, the mm. completion of the transaction Um what are the key components that we're um, we're going to include in the contract over and above what we've stipulated or articulated in the term sheet and just talk it out and maybe that's a better way to, to approach it and then everyone's on the same table before we start. 
Oh, I completely agree, Peter. And look, you know, this area, this is, I love this. I've always loved this area of law, particularly because it's all about, the parties are all driving for the same thing at the end of the day. You know, you're driving for the win-win for everyone. Um, and, and, you know, I think when you can put a process in place that helps support that communication between everyone, because what you're talking about here is, you know, quite often um, embarking on a long-term ongoing relationship. You know, it's not just sign the contract and be done in many instances. Um, and so setting it up right from the beginning, but not allowing, you know, the lawyers or other components of the deal team to come in and, and create elements of mistrust by, you know, by by wrong communication style, I think is is such an important part of making sure it stays a win-win for, for everyone throughout the process. I think, again, you're, you're absolutely right. And I guess when contracts are finished um, with our acquisitions, it is very, very rare when I've, ha I've got, had to go back and pull one out to reread a clause in something, um, you know, because there's been a, a query raised. So everyone's pretty much on the same page um, mm. when the deal's done and we, we are in long-term relationships with our principals because some of them have burnouts and, um, you know, ongoing, uh, I guess, uh, agreements with us. And we are, you know, we're partners and we see them in many ways as our clients rather than the patients because we have to provide them with the service to enable them to be able to deploy treatment plans um, to their patients. So it's, you know, very, very important relationship. It, it's really important we get off on the right foot together and we keep that momentum going the whole way through. Well, that's it for this episode of the Deal Room Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our podcast replay of episode 163, the inside story from an aggregator, how to drive transaction success with Peter Hughes from Kakata Lane Dental. If you'd like to listen to the second part of this two-part series, simply head to the show notes where we link to this episode, which is part two. That is episode 164. So you can find it in your phone or you can find it in the show notes. In that episode, we discussed different aggregation models, how to lock in some of the value of acquisitions and how to minimize some of the risks. We also talk about the benefits for practices looking to partner with an aggregator and a cautionary warning for sellers to ensure they don't leave their thoughts of exit too late to be able to maximize their exit outcomes. So the discussion in this second part of our two-part series does provide important insights for acquirers and also sellers. So I highly recommend going and digging out that episode and having a listen. Now, if you're interested in talking to our lawyers about anything related to this topic, head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au to book a free 15-minute discussion with our legal team. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. If you did, please subscribe to The Deal Room Podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast player to get notifications straight to your phone whenever a new episode is out. We'd also love to hear your feedback, so please leave us a review and rating if you're one of our subscribers or even if you're listening to this podcast for the first time. Thanks again for listening in. This has been Joanna Oakey and the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Mm -hmm.
Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to The Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. 